You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, I'm Charles Farrell, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Charles Farrell. He's the author of Low Life, a memoir of jazz, fight fixing, and the mob. Charles, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for inviting me, Tony. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, I have too. This, uh, okay, so first off, you're, first off, okay, the, the beginning is you're a jazz musician, right? You're playing jazz. Is that where the story kind of starts here? Well, it's maybe the first thing I knew how to do. So uh-huh. yeah, I would say the story starts there. So, so how did you, how did you, the, how did you learn jazz? Did you, did you take piano lessons when you were a kid? No, no, I didn't learn jazz. I could play jazz. Okay. Um, it's a, you know, I'm, I'm someone who has very, very few aptitudes for anything, but I have a few aptitudes and a couple of things I know how to do. I just know how to do. And so my family, um, going back three generations, were all working musicians and at least the, pre- the previous two had been jazz musicians. So it was assumed that I could, I could play. And sure enough, I could play. Wow. Did, can you read music or is it by the ear? Well, here's something kind of interesting. I never thought I needed to know how to read music. So I couldn't read music. And I wound up gigging all the time. And I wound up, at, you know, I would say by the time I was in my late teens, I was maybe the most successful working musician in Boston and I couldn't read music. And I decided for a couple of, a number of reasons that I needed to learn how to read music. And I read music not to be too self-congratulatory, phenomenally well now. I mean, that, that's actually how I practice. I sight read the hardest music I can find for three hours every morning. You still practice three hours a day? Yeah. Yeah, wow. absolutely. Wow. And do you still play out? Or do, do you, are you still craving gigs? I know we're in COVID. We're coming out of COVID, so. No. Um, I've got really mixed feelings about gigging because I started to gig professionally when I was 12. And I stopped when I was 27 because I'd been gigging seven nights a week for years and years and years. And I'm not sort of by nature a performer. So I just stopped playing in public. And then I, I had a reason to play a gig. At one point I was down on my luck and I needed, you know, I needed some work. And if you play piano, you can always work. You can work any city, you know, any place in the world. You can have a job and you can have money and you can have a place to live. So I did that for a while. And then I went back to playing maybe a decade or so ago, just to see what I thought of it. I, I played, I spent a bunch of time playing with Ornette Coleman, um, which it's strange enough, we didn't do in public at all. We did at his house or his, his, you know, his condo, his apartment. Um, and we were gonna put a group together and I quit. I didn't like the group. So I didn't do that. And then I've been playing, I played a few concerts with my friend, Evan Parker. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a saxophone player, great saxophone player. Um, But, you know, I, 
I can only play now in public if I've really worked on something that I think is significant and is new. And so if I've played something before, I'm not inclined to play it again. And I'm just coming back to something, a new project that may bring me back out. We'll see. Yeah. Gigging from that young of an age. Um, you must have made a lot of money in those years, that young. I, I did. Um, it's, it's odd because, you know, I know musicians struggle. And that just never happened. Um, I'm not, you know, part of it is, is sort of self-fulfilling because if you've got the reputation of being the highest paid musician, you become ipso facto the highest paid musician and people will pay you because they want to pay the highest paid musician. And so it's not, you know, um, it's not necessarily a meritocracy, you know, it's your reputation. And so, yeah, I, um, I don't know if this translates, but when I was about 20, I was making $30,000 a year in, in cash. And I don't know what that's equivalent to now, but it provided me with a house and two apartments. And the, the irony is that one of the, my, my, the gig I had was literally around the corner from where I lived. And I had up an apartment between my house and the gig. <laughs> so I'm not even sure why, you know, it was just like, um, just a habit. Yeah. Did you plug your speakers uh, back in? Did we do, did, I just want to ask real quick. Yeah. yeah back you, can you unplug them? Cause I, yeah. I think that's what we're getting. Um, there we go. Right. Well, Wait, but, now I have to, but now I can't hear you. Oh, okay. Can you, how, how are you going to hear me? <laughs> Hang on, hang on. I think this, I got something that might work. Okay. This all, this all stays in the show too, because this is the fun stuff. Okay, I can hear you now. Great. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a lot better. Um, that it's just to be that young and have that much access to like, I mean, you, to, to be a gigging, uh, playing the piano at clubs at that age, you had to kind of be a super, superstar in the, in the city, yeah? Well, it's not a big city. But yeah, right. yeah, 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 sure. What, where at in Boston were you at? I, I, ironically, I bought the place where I live now uh -huh. when I was 15. So, wow. So yeah, yeah. So I've been, you know, I mean, I've, I haven't lived here the whole time. I mean, I've, this has been my house the whole time. Uh -huh. And I've always kept it as a place to live. But I've lived in, you know, quite a few places in between. Yeah. While keeping this. And and when when you were playing piano, you were kind of what there was at the beginning when you were kind of around the mob, the bot like the Boston mob of that era is was that the beginning? No, no. Okay. I mean, I was around the mob from an early age, but not in yeah. conjunction with music. Strangely, okay. it was initially initially I was in, I was involved in the mob through boxing, mm -hmm. um, and then. But in a strangely legitimate way, all I did was give them advice about who to bet. Um, I didn't get involved in things like fight fixing until I was older. But then, then I was making a living as a jazz musician. And I found out that playing mob clubs would pay me about twice as much. And I'd already gotten bored with playing jazz. I, I wasn't very interested in playing jazz anymore. 
And so I thought, well, let, let me make a really good living. So that's what, you know, I would do that and then I'd get fed up with doing that. And I'd go back to playing jazz or doing television work or something like that. And then I'd need the money and I'd go back to playing live clubs. Huh. And then as, um, and then what, what got you started, what, what got you started in the, uh, in, in boxing? What, what was it about boxing? Cause it, cause you could have chose any, uh, any other, uh, place to kind of be, uh, what do you call it? Be, uh, do the gambling thing and such, but you chose boxing. Well, that's the other thing that I have an aptitude for. Uh-huh. And it, it, again, they, it's, it's strange because my, I started being able to play the piano when I was three. And I started being, being able to predict fights when I was three. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what it was that allowed me to see the nuances of boxing, but I could always do it. And I got better as I got older, of course. So um, I started fixing fights really when I started managing fighters, mostly because it was practical, it was smart. Um, because you're spending your own money. And when you start to spend your own money, you, you know, you're a little bit more prudent about how, you know, what you do with it. And I, I also started to see being around boxing gyms all the time and seeing fighters all the time. You know, I, I started to be concerned by the, the damage that they, every one of them or virtually every one of them occurred. And I had misgivings about contributing to that damage. So it was, you know, I was pretty conflicted about it because I was making a living at it. It was something I loved um, in some ways. Uh, I knew a lot about it. I liked and admired boxers. I wanted to manage world champions, which I wound up doing. But I also was watching the collateral damage that was being done. And I thought, maybe this is not necessary. You know, maybe there are ways to get around this. And then, you know, I started fixing fights and that ties in with gambling, of course. And then I started fixing fights for, for the mob. And that was all predicated on fixing fights, you know, because uh, they almost never picked anybody who could fight. They, they had personal reasons for doing it. Um, although there's, there's, interestingly enough, there's a fairly substantial difference between fixing fights for the Italian mob, the Irish mob, or the Russian mob. They all have different levels of involvement. They also, they, they all appreciate it with different levels of sophistication. So, um, and dealing with them is a very different thing too, each time. Was there, was, was there any hairy situations that just where you're like, Oh man, I got, was there a point where you're like, I got to get out of this and how do I get out of this cleanly without having any issues with, uh, with the various moms? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I got into a lot of trouble. Um, I can tell some of the story and I can't tell all of the story, but I was, I was fixing fights for the mafia and they had uh, a heavyweight who couldn't fight at all, really a horrible, horrible heavyweight. And so all of his fights had to be fixed, but, but it was worse than just having to be fixed because not only was he terrible, he was deeply insecure, um, which meant there was always a crisis of confidence. And you, you, when you fix fights, you don't tell the winner. 
or you almost never tell the winner that he's going to win. It's, you know, it doesn't look right. It just, it reads wrong. So the loser needs to know, or well, most of the times the loser needs to know and the winner doesn't. Anyway, I wound up in a situation where there was a guy who was an old matchmaker and I'd done business with him many, many times before. He was very good at what he did, but he was greedy. He had been given a bunch of money by the mob, both by me through the mob, to fix a fight um, that had to go one round. And instead of fixing the fight, he chose a fighter who couldn't fight, which is not the same thing at all. You know, uh, most of the time you, you get what you want, but it's, it's not the certainty that fixing a fight is. And I intuitively sensed just before the fight that something didn't feel right. So I went into the loser's dressing room and um, I asked him if he knew what to do. And as it turns out, he didn't know what to do. And the fight was going to take place in a few minutes. So I went back into the crowd where the mob guys were all, you know, they brought their guys down from New York. And I said, look, we've got a little problem. I have to work out, but the guy didn't fix the fight. And the mob guys were expansive about it. They were great. They said, oh, well, you know, you're going to take care of it because we're going to kill you. We're going to kill him. We're going to kill the fighter. We're going to kill every one of you motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they were serious and they, they would have done it. So I went back to the loser's dressing room and I said, well, okay, here's what has to happen. You have to lose the fight. And he started crying. He said, I can't do it. He says, the guy's going to kill me anyway. I'm not much of a fighter, but my, my parents are here. My family's here. I can't let them see me do that. And I said, well, you don't understand. They're going to come in here in the next couple of minutes and they're going to kill everybody. And I, my guess is your mother is going to like that less than watching you lose a fight. And he still didn't want to do it. So I called in the matchmaker, the guy, this treacherous guy, who hadn't given him his money and hadn't told him what to do and pocketed the money. And I said, explain to him what has to happen. And the guy was sort of, you know, he, he really didn't have it together. I mean, he said, well, you know, this kid can't fight at all. It's not going to be a problem. It's going to be a one round fight. And so I said, okay, well, look, give him back, give him all the money and give him all the money you've got, which turned out to be considerably more than he was supposed to get. And we worked it out so that it wouldn't go on the kid's record just fight under another name and he'd get four wins in exchange for money. But I still had to take him outside, which is a really odd thing to do because I had to show him how to do it. So I'm out in the parking lot. People are still coming in for the fight and I'm no fighter and I've never been a fighter. But I said to this kid, put your hands up. So he put his hands up and I hit him as hard as I could in the mouth. And then I hit him in the, in the stomach and then I hit him in the mouth again. And I'm talking to him as I'm doing this. I actually bloodied his lip. And I really, I can't say this strongly. I am not a fighter. But I'm saying to the kid, okay, so don't you dare punch back. This is what's going to happen to you. Don't punch back, no matter what. And I said to his, he had a guy who was kind of a handler. I said, third punch, the towel comes in. I said, throw it into the middle of the ring and throw it very high and yell something when you do, so that the referee knows to stop the fight. And it worked out great. The fight lasted 17 seconds, and it looked fantastic, and the mob guys were 
you know, absolutely delirious with happiness. I thought, this is great, great. And then a little bit later, they said, let's go get the, uh, the matchmaker. We need to talk to him. And I said, no, you don't need to talk to him. He didn't make a dime on this thing. You've got exactly what you wanted. You got a better result than if the fight had been fixed. I mean, beforehand, because the, the kid was so petrified. Everything worked out beautifully. Um, and they said, no, no, nobody, nobody makes a fool of us this way. And I said, it makes no sense. You know, nobody made a fool of you. But they put us in a van. They had me go get the guy. He was sitting in a restaurant with a promoter. And I had to get him and bring him into a van. And they drove us out to the middle of the country. And I, one of the guys was a hitman. I knew who he was. That's what he did for a living. And the other guys are these mobbed up guys. And they take us to the middle of nowhere. They're telling the guy, the matchmaker was from around there. They're having him direct them how to get to the middle of nowhere. And he's so petrified that he's doing it. And he's pleading and he's saying, you know, I, I, I'll never do anything like that again. I just I picked a guy who couldn't fight. And they're talking about him in third person as if he's already gone. And I figure, okay, well, they're gonna kill him and they're gonna kill me. And they take him out and they take him, tell him to leave the van and to walk 10 steps. And I, I'm thinking, okay, this is it. This is it for him and probably this is it for me. And then they, afterwards they say, okay, now walk back to the van. And they drive, drive us back and they let us go. And I thought, that's it, we're okay. And then some stuff I can't talk about happened. And then they, they decided that they were coming after me. And I was, I was living in the mountains of Puerto Rico. And I, you know, I thought out of reach, but somebody told them where I was, sort of, sort of. And uh, I had to broker a deal through Al Braverman, who was Don King's director of boxing in order to get my, get from, keep from being killed. I had to go back to New York and meet these guys at his office. And they needed a promotional deal for their fighter. And Al Braverman owed me a big favor. So he gave them that. And he said, um, it's a wise guy term. He said, Charles is with us, meaning with King. And so if your kid, your kid won't get a fight anywhere in the world. And if he does get a fight, it will be the last thing that he'll ever remember. You, you'll wish he had. So we'll give you a promotional deal right now. And everything with Charles is done. He's never going to mention your names, which of course I never have and never will. And that's the end of it. And everybody goes back to business as usual. And that was it. But they were sending somebody to Puerto Rico to kill me. So, you know, it's serious business. How, how, how confident were you when I talk? That's when the echo happens on your end. Um, I'll, I'll try to talk softer. How confident were you after that meeting that the hit of you possibly getting killed was never going to happen? Did, was that where you like, was it totally like, very cool? I'm safe. Or is it, wow, that was close, but I still need to look over my shoulder. Until the meeting took place, literally until 
it had happened, I thought there was a pretty good chance that I'd get killed in New York. That, you know, this was a setup. Not, not, not that Al set me up, but that they set me up. This was a chance to get me, you know, um, within reach and that they would kill me. Now, I did a little homework. I mean, I, I got there way earlier than they did. And I watched and I, you know, scoured the streets. And, and I didn't see anybody come in or go out or do any of the things that would have worried me. But I thought, you know, this could be it. Um, and I thought right afterwards when I walked to my car that that might be it. But after that, no, I, I was, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but I felt relatively safe because I said, look, you know, um, I don't give names. Because, uh, you know, it just, it's just something I just don't do. And I'm not going to do it on you guys or on anybody else. And I think they believe me. I have a good reputation in the business. And so, you know, it's been, you know, many, many years now. And, you know, they're still alive. They're still around. And I'm, you know, I'm never going to say who they are under any circumstances. And I'm never going to say what happened to the people who bad things happened to. What, what was it like? What was it like the first time? Like, I guess it would have been in the van. What's it like to, what's it like going through your head when you're like, this might be it. This is the end. What, what, what are you, you know, there's the terror. I know there's the terror, but you're also facing death. Is there, is there other things going on? It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like you're having a near death experience, except not, <laughs> I, I would, except I would think. Two, yeah, two near death experience. Um, it's, you're, you're sort of frightened at a level that only occurs once or twice in your lifetime, you know, where um, I remember that I was freezing. That, that was the physical sensation. I was, I was, just incredibly cold um but i also I, I'm, I'm not sure where this comes from but i thought let me keep my wits about me there may be a way to get around this yet and nothing has happened yet and i did give them what they wanted and i've shown i've shown them that i can do that i can supply something that maybe nobody else can so i may still have value here and there's also no reason for them to do what they're doing. So you sort of keep, you, you keep that in mind, you know, that there's, there may be an out and you're looking for that out if, if you can find it. But, um, you know, I mean, strangely enough, this part of you that turns philosophical, um, which I wouldn't have expected, you know, um, I thought, well, my son's an adult, you know, um, we've gotten that far. But I also thought, this is going to sound really strange because it's surprisingly philosophical given the circumstances. But I thought, you know, you've really wasted your life. If it comes to this, you've really wasted your life. And then, so. and then, um, so, so, so after that, do you reevaluate your life and go, okay, how do I, what do I do to change this? Even though you kind of stuck around after the van incident, it seems like there was, was that, was there like a change of values, I guess, of 
I mean, the next time you saw your son, did you like just give him a bear hug? And he's like, dad, what the hell is this? And you're like, Dude, just. <laughs> I, I do that anyway, but he would have known. I mean, you know, he's someone who for better or worse has known about every aspect of my life for his whole life. You know, I was very young when he was born and we were kind of kids together, but um so he knew, I mean, these weren't surprises to him. And, you know, that's something in retrospect, you shouldn't strap your kids with. I mean, that, that's a, that was a terrible mistake, but, um, but yeah, he's, he was, he was very pleased that, that I was still alive and kicking. No question about that. We always got along really well, but um, yeah, you know, I was undergoing a kind of change of heart prior to that anyway. So you know, you don't change overnight. Even even these kind of um, epiphanies don't. You know, you're not a different person. So I've made my living in this for a long time, and I didn't stop making my living in it immediately. I had, strangely enough, I continued to make a couple of fights for the mob guys. The reason being is because if I hadn't, what I would have done would have been irresponsible and being irresponsible is dangerous. So what I needed to do is I needed to find someone to hand their guy off to who was reliable and who understood the stakes involved and could play at that level and was knowledgeable enough so he understood what he was taking on, which is what I did, which at at, at which point, in good conscience, I could walk away from them. And they couldn't construct a narrative where they felt that I had cheated them in some way. So, you know, they were taken care of. And the guy I handed them off to didn't like them much and felt that they were pretty treacherous. So after a short time, he handed them off to somebody else who I knew very well, who was equally competent. And that guy wound up going to jail for fight fixing hmm. um, because he, somebody gave him up and it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't me and it wasn't my friend. It was one of his fighters, in fact, but he stood up, you know, he did what you're supposed to do. Never gave any names. So, um, but between that and seeing, you know, I was managing Leon Spinks after that. And Managing Leon forced me to come to terms with a lot of things because he's somebody I love. He's a wonderful person. And of course, he'd been the heavyweight champion of the world at one point and beat Muhammad Ali for the title. Uh, and he'd been an Olympic gold medalist. So his bona fides were, were, you know, pretty impressive. But he couldn't fight. You know, he was old and he was used up and he was badly, badly hurt. And I put him in a fight where he got more badly hurt. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not justifiable. If you're somebody's manager, you have an obligation, you know, and I mean, it's tricky for me to talk about because, you know, this, again, this, this, you can construct this story where what I'm doing is entirely altruistic. And of course that's not true. You know, I'm doing things for a number of reasons. You know, the world is a very nuanced place. And so you know, I was doing it to make money. I was doing it because it's what I did. 
uh, it was do I was doing it because at one point you commit to either doing it or not doing it, and I'd already committed to doing it. But that was conjoined with, you know, with having moral and ethical issues that were becoming weighing on me increasingly heavy, heavily, you know, over the years. Fighters get hurt. It's that simple, you know, and and uh, it's damage that people can't understand. Even the simple stuff, you know, the the um, you know dementia and things like that is only a small part of it. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I was friendly with a very good fighter who who had it. And one of the things he said to me is, "It doesn't hurt." doesn't hurt there's no pain attached to it and so it's 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 incredibly complex because you're enmeshed in a lifestyle that you know and that you're comfortable with but you're this incredibly damaged person and you're a damaged person who at some level recognizes the damage and another level accepts it and i i wouldn't use the term welcomes it but there's a weird comfort in it, you know, and that's a tough thing to take in from the outside. So anyway, I got out of it, you know, and, uh, and haven't gone back. When you get out of it, <laughs> it echoes every time I start to talk and then it's good. When, when you get out of it, um, you're, you're living a life of such high stakes and every decision you make is huge on so many levels. So when you get out of it, does is there something where you, your your brain is kind of looking for status quo and going, wait, where's the next juice? Where's the next juice? Is is or or can you walk away and go, now it's time to relax and feel okay relaxing? Well, ironically, considering the, the things I've done, I never lived for juice. I never felt that. I mean, it's it's. You know, it, it's something that, um, you know, it is, is part of making certain decisions. And, you know, it just goes with the territory. But I never welcomed it. At least I don't think I did. I mean, you know, people can be self-deluded. And, you know, I did it for a long time. And I did a lot of things like that for a long time. You know, some of which I can't talk about. So you always have to ask yourself, are you being honest with yourself. I mean, you're walking into one of these situations and you walk out of it, you walk into a, you know, another one or one that's even an accelerated one. But I don't think I liked it. I mean, you know, um, I know, for example, when I was a young kid, when I started playing music in nightclubs, that was a real thrill. But I was 12 years old. And by the time I was 15 years old, I had outgrown it. Um, and you know, I, I once lost about $420,000 or $430,000 in a bet um, where I had to fly down to Santo Domingo in a, a private plane under the radar because it was illegal to do it. And, and I lost the bet, by the way. And I thought, well, that's the kind of juice gamblers live for. Um, but as far as I can tell, I was scared, you know, flying in under the radar. I didn't enjoy it. 
I didn't like putting down in a cane field in Samana. Um, and I would much rather have won $1,250,000 than have lost $430,000. I swear that's what I believe. What, um, there's the echo and the echo goes away. What, it, what was, oh man, I had a great question. No, I didn't. I'm kidding. But here's another one. <laughs> what, what, when you were young and you could see who was going to win or lose a fight when you were really young do, and you had that, um, it's almost, you had that, uh, you said it earlier and you had much a better word. Aptitude. It's, it's an aptitude. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You had the aptitude. Yeah. I have an aptitude. Was it, do you think it was something where you could tell just by the body motion or was there where, where you could tell by the look in their eyes? What, what was it where you did, could you actually define the sense later and go, Oh, wait a second. It was the way his, his feet were placed or was there anything like that? Yeah. A lot of it was technical. A lot of it, you know, I, I didn't need much time, um, but give me a minute. And I can tell by what the fighters are doing most, you know, vast majority of the time who's going to win and how they're going to win. And now that I'm older, I can generally tell you who's going to win a fight between two guys I've never seen fight before, um, between before the bell rings. Um, and not all the time, but the vast majority of the time. What I didn't understand when I was a kid is that aptitude is only an aspect of the game. I didn't understand the business and I didn't understand the politics. And so those things factor into boxing in a very major way. And that's stuff I had to learn. I, you know, that wasn't something that was intuitive. Wow. It, it, there's, there's something about boxing and like literary uh, that I, it's, I, I, I've never trained a box and I want to start taking boxing classes. You know, it only took me to, oh, 50, no. it only no. took me to, no, no, not, not, in, not in a way where I'm going to go out and do bouts, but you know, just where I can just, uh, what do you call it? Get more coordination and possibly lose my COVID 35 pounds, you know, but, but that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but the, there's, there's just, as, as I keep learning about boxing, and, and just fighting there's there's such a story element to it there's the story of the fighter it's it's it seems and maybe maybe i'm just bringing my own psychosis to it but it seems like there's always a story that with that when i look at certain things i'm like oh that learning the story of how a person gets there and then what the battle's gonna be it's almost it's just it's like drama like watching a film or reading a book there's it has all the elements of storytelling or, or, or am I on acid and losing my mind? You're, you're looking at me like I'm crazy, and you're right. <laughs> you know, it, that's a good question. Um, boxing is small. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but boxing is portrayed melodramatically. So it's either enlarged or it's seedy in a way that's unrealistic. And so... I think a lot of the literary elements that are ascribed to boxing are just vastly overly dramatic or melodramatic or inflated or heroic um, or tragic. And what I found about boxing is that it refutes all of those things in real life. I mean, one of the 
one of the reasons I started boxing about writing about boxing, you know, in addition to the fact that people asked me to do it, is I wanted to write truthfully about it because I read so little that had any real resemblance to boxing as it as it exists as a life or as a livelihood. So I thought, let me tone this down. Um, because, you know, it's, and people get into boxing, the people who actually do it for a living because they're good at it and because they don't have a lot of choices. You know, I mean, I just did a terrible movie that's on Showtime right now called Pariah, a real piece of junk and horrible about Sonny Liston, who was a great favorite of mine. Wait, when you say you did a movie, did you write it or were you? Oh, I'm just, I'm just one of the talking heads. Okay. I'm an expert. You know, I get to play myself, which lately I've been doing in movies. Uh, I'm, you know, and, and the guy who made it, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name, not that it matters, but um, he, he's a British guy and he was asking me about something Liston. And he said, would you say that culturally, um, that what Sonny Liston did, which was winning the heavyweight championship, is one of the only options available for a poor black American. I said, well, that's like saying is, you know, is, is winning the mega, you know, whatever, Powerball, mega bucks, one of the only options available if you're a poor black American? The answer is no, it's not an option. First of all, you have to be a genius. That's where you start. You have to be a genius at it. And you're not a genius. You're just a guy. So no, it's not an option. And, and to say that it, you know, to think that it might be an option is such a deeply racist way of seeing things. It you know, suggests for one thing that all black men can fight or all black men can you know, entertain or, or win the lottery or you know, something that they can't do. Right. And, right. You know, and that's another part of the way, you know, and, and I hear this from people who, make their living in boxing, that, you know, it's a way out for, for poor kids. It's not a way out for poor kids. Again, it's like saying, you know, um, you can be a rock star. <laughs> well, you can't be a rock star, you know, but there are rock stars. Yes, there are rock stars. And there are people who get hit by, you know, who get hit by lightning twice. But if that's what you're banking on having happen in your life, you're going to be disappointed. And you know, that's the sort of, I, I think that's sort of how boxing is seen in literary circles too. And it's just a deeply melodramatic way of seeing the real world. Yeah, it's interesting. There's my echo and the echo's gone. It's, uh, it's interesting because I guess people who, you know, these people are so disconnected They've never lived in these neighborhoods. They never, they've, they, they don't know where these guys grow up. And they go, oh, in order for him to get out of the neighborhood, he had to become a big time boxer. And you're just like, you, you're not even looking at the, you're not looking at the elements of what makes up a culture or, you know, where people come from. Right, right. That's exactly it. You're not and, looking and they almost want to stay disconnected from it and think that's the narrative. And it's, you're like, what? No. You know, I mean, nerds well, come or, out of there, <laughs> or or they go. You know, they take some time in, in, in a real gym, and uh, you know, and and they think that that 
you know, that, that that's some, some kind of cultural transfer. I don't know what they think. But, you know, my advice to anybody is don't get hit in the head. Don't do it. Don't do it for fun. Don't do it for recreation. It's not a learning experience. It will teach you nothing except for the fact that you'll get terrible headaches and that, that you can't do it, that you're not good at it. Um, you know, people aren't good at esoteric things. And boxing is a deeply esoteric thing. You know, so um, I don't know. I, you know, I, I still love it in some ways, but, you know, I, I see the misuse to which it's put. And, and do you see, do you see the, um, what do you call it? When, when you see like a, when you're watching a new boxer come up, do you look at them and go, oh man, you, you have like four fights in you before the damage starts really getting done. I mean, how, how do you like see, just see it on the peripheral now? That's, that's sort of how I see it. Yeah. You know, and I can see even to some degree that the trajectory that they're going to go through, how whether or not that's going to happen to them fast, whether it's going to happen to them at all, whether or not um, they'll be in one fight or two fights and they'll disappear, which is, you know, more common than, than not. Um, but sure, I mean, you, you, you can see that there's a, there's a, there's a lifeline that goes with this. And, you know, the prognosis is almost never good. And, and when you, when you wrote the book and you're, and you're starting to, to craft your story, um, I, I know you're not naming names, but is there a worry there? Are, are, were you really like, okay, am I, as you're editing it, are, you're like, are you really like going through technically and going, I'm not even, is this even a suggestion towards somebody that might be a problem when you're when you're working on your work because even putting a book out feels like high stakes in this uh, from what you've done in your life. Yeah, I thought about it a little bit, but I I, I thought of I, first of all I thought that the the people who potentially will read this book do not come from the same strata as the people who would you know be offended by it. Um, but if you do do read it, you'll see that no names get mentioned. And um, if it came right down to it, I just deny the whole thing. I said, none of this ever happened. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, everything, everything in that book is true. Everything happened, but not everything that happened is in the book. And I'm not sacrificing my life for a fucking book. <laughs> that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> Or blurb. Yes. yes. <laughs> make my t-shirt. That's great. Right. I'll have that made up. Yeah. yeah so every you know, guys, if you hear this, you all know who you are. Your secret is safe with me. <laughs> and um and then and continuing writing. Are you are you work are you continuing to write? Is um or well, you know, I don't know. Um you know, my writing the book in some ways is very, very cynical. I, I had no intention of writing a book and I wrote the book because someone asked me to and someone paid me to. That's it. Other than that, I wouldn't have done it. Um, and I only started writing because I got really lucky. When I started to write a few years ago, my first piece got published in Deadspin and I kept my mouth shut when asked how much I wanted to get paid. And I found out that I was getting paid more than 
pretty much anyone else. So I just started taking the money and doing these things for money. And that's really all, you know, the book, I didn't even write a book to write a book, to be honest. I wrote a book so that someone would option it and turn it into a movie or a TV series. You know, uh, I want to make money on this. That's it. I mean, I wrote the best book I could. You know, I, I'm, I really tried to write as good a book as I know how to write, but I wouldn't have even thought of it if I didn't think I could make money at it. Yeah, you got the Charles juice that so many people want. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I, I've been banging my head against the wall for, you know, 20 years writing. And it's like, I, I do it so I don't, um, you know, so so I stay sane, not for the money, because there's barely any money in it. It's uh, so I love this. I love hearing the other side of it like this. It's like, wow, really? That happens? <laughs> Maybe I'm doing it wrong. I think I lost you there. Did I lose you? Oh no. Technical difficulties on drinks with Tony. It's the technical difficulty song. Technical difficulties on drinks with Tony. Or he was offended and turned off turned it off. Are you there? I'm here. Are you here? Yeah, I'm back. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. No, what I was gonna say is literally everybody I know is a better writer than I am. I'm the worst writer I know. All of my friends are better writers. <laughs> Way to sell your book. And, and, and they're all, you know, and they're all trying to make a buck, these poor people. And they're great. They all, they all write their asses off. And I mean, you know, we have a mutual friend, you know, Robert Annecy. Yeah. Robert Annecy is in a different universe than I am as a writer. Completely different universe, you know. And, you know, Robert does what he can to, to make a living. But nobody hands him anything. Yeah. And, you know, he's a, he's an incredible talent. <laughs> so, so of course, of course you have an option already and there's a TV series involved, right? Cause you, you got the, you got the golden hand, I think. So, I'm... you know what? Not really. I mean, I've gotten two, two offers so far and I don't like either one of them, uh -huh. uh, but they're from real people. They're from people who make movies and they've made movies that have done pretty well. And, uh, but I don't like what I'm hearing. You know, and um, I mean, that's one of the great things is that I can say, no, I can walk away from this. I don't care. You know, um, I if I don't like what I, what I hear, I mean, the funny thing is at one point I was right. I'm going to do an interview with uh, the Daily Beast in a couple of days. I've written for them before. I get along. We're all friends. We get along great. And we're going to do a great interview. But at one point uh, I sued them because I didn't like the way I had been paid. And, you know, I was, and I wound up getting, I think it was three times more than the article because my lawyer, I had a lawyer who was a good friend and we just bullied their lawyer. And, uh, and you know, someone said to me, well, you're never, you'll never write for the Daily Beast again. And that was a day before Muhammad Ali died. And I wound up writing for the Daily Beast that day. And, Dead spin that day, and it was slate. <laughs> you know, this business, business is business. Yeah. You got it, man. I really <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I I feel like we need to do three specials <laughs> with you. Oh man, this is great. Thank you for letting me go on and on here. You're listening to 101.9 FM. 
KPCRLP Santa Cruz.